Dog Days of Podcasting, Day 8. It's Tuesday, August 11th, 2020. So we're going to take a break and not talk about specific pandemics for the next two days and instead talk about viruses, which I think we're all interested in in these times. So what is a virus? If you recall from an earlier episode, there are two types of viruses, generally, DNA viruses and RNA viruses. But what more specifically defines a virus? A virus is a tiny piece of genetic material, either RNA or DNA, and the entire viral particle, known as a, as a virion, cons- consists of this genetic material and an outer shell of protein that encases it, which is called a capsid. Some viruses have a second protective layer known as the envelope. If you recall your basic biology, remember that DNA which is in the nucleus of cells and which contains all the genes, is converted to messenger RNA, which goes out of the nucleus into the cytoplasm of the cell. And the messenger RNA uses structures called, structures called ribosomes to convert amino acids into proteins. It's a general beginning of things in a cell. Viruses are what you call obligate parasites meaning they have to invade foreign cells in order to hijack their biological machinery to replicate. Viruses cannot replicate on their own, and without a host, they're doomed for extinction. And I take by extinction here, I think they mean the virus will die. And by death, I don't think we can imagine the type of death we generally associate with humans dying or mammals dying or even plants or animals, uh, uh, bacteria dying. But instead, I really just think it's a chemical degradation. Just like any chemical can degrade, a polymer can degrade in the sun, for example. We don't think a polymer as being alive, but in this case, really that's all that's happening. And as a side note, you might think, wow, this just seems so unlikely, so weird. Why would there be this weird rogue piece of DNA or RNA doing this? I, I, I don't want to try to explain the whole evolutionary, evolutionary background of how things exist, but these things just happen by chance. Remember, there are also rogue proteins called uh, prions that do the same type of thing. They also infect and cause problems. This is just the, the case of genetic material, DNA or RNA, also causing issues. So don't try to make anything too mystical about it. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. These things just happen when you have um, billions and billions of years for things to evolve. Anyway, let's get back to things. Uh, Note, a parasite, remember we said viruses are obligate parasites. A parasite is an organism that lives in or on an organism of another species, which is its host, and it benefits by deriving nutrients at the other's expense. Uh, Examples we learned were protozoa and worms can also be parasites. An obligate parasite is a parasitic organism that cannot complete its life cycle without exploiting a suitable host. This is opposed to a a facultative, I may not say that right, facultative or facultative parasite, which can act as a parasite but does not rely on its host to continue its life cycle. There you go. Back to viruses. Viruses are the smallest of all microbes. The polio virus, for example, 
is on the smaller end of viruses and it's about 30 nanometers across and it's about 10,000 times smaller than a grain of sand, a grain of salt. However, viruses can vary by a factor of about 1,000 in size. So there can be a big difference between small and big viruses. Nevertheless, even with a powerful optical microscope, you can't see a virus. At least I think that's what I read. Uh, I interpreted what I read. Because they can't self-replicate like other living cells, most biologists believe viruses cannot be classified as life forms. Not all agree with this, by the way. Their classification as living beings can get complicated because they do reproduce. And at the same time, viruses are subjected to evolutionary pressure, just like any other living creature. Viruses can't get by our, can't get by our skin, but can get, in any op- can get in any openings in our body. Once inside the body, the virus cannot reach its infectious potential if it's not, if it's not capable of attaching itself to host cell surfaces. To do so, viruses have to be able to recognize and bind to certain receptors on the surface of cells, like a lock and a key. This is why viruses can only infect certain species of hosts and only certain cells within that host. After it binds to a cell, there are a few ways it can inject its RNA or DNA into a cell. And I tried to learn various ways, but it's complicated, a bit over my head, and I can't really explain it. But there's ways it can, after it attaches to its a cell, can then push its RNA or DNA into the cell. Once an RNA virus injects its RNA into a cell, the RNA produces enzymes, which are proteins, that recreate the virus itself. Enzymes uh, are catalysts. They help chemical reactions occur or to occur faster. DNA viruses, by the way, will inject DNA, which then produce the RNA, which then produce the enzymes. A virus seems to have no purpose but to reproduce itself, which evidently exhausts the cell, bursting the cell open to release millions of virions that are capable of infecting adjacent cells and repeating the replication cycle. It just seems so, so evil that viruses seem to have no purpose but to reproduce. But then again, hey, Same with us, right? Joking. Okay, although cells can get damaged and die due to the viral replication cycle, a person will fall ill and exhibit symptoms of disease mainly as a result of the immune response to the virus. I didn't really know this, I have to admit. In its attempt to control and purge the virus from the body, the immune system will also attack healthy cells. So I don't know if this is always the case, but it sounds like it's often the case that it's the attack on the virus that causes problems. And we probably have heard of this in the case of COVID. You may have heard this is how you get some lung damage. It's this immune response to COVID. But I didn't know that was a general thing. The shrewd virus will use the host's sickness to its advantage. For instance, a person that has symptoms of the common cold will have a runny nose and a cough. And the respiratory fluids that they expel contain copious amounts of rhinovirus. A rhinovirus is just a virus that's gotten into your nose. Most of these viruses expelled through sneezing or coughing will not find a host and they will die. Which again, I am taking to mean that they just chemically decompose on the floor. Uh, But eventually some will meet new hosts and restart their cycle of viral replication. One host at a time, the little bastards. 
Some viruses can also replicate inside intermediate hosts, such as insects, using them as vectors of transmission. The Zika virus, for instance, is spread by mosquitoes when they bite humans. Uh, others find bats. We've heard COVID may have had a reservoir, uh, maybe may have been using bats as a reservoir, an intermediate host. I heard once on a podcast that bats have a unique physiology that viruses live in a lot because bats can really fight viruses off. It has to do with the fact that bats are flying mammals. Maybe the, I don't know if they're the only flying mammals, but they're flying mammals, so they have this incredible metabolism uh, going on, and that uh, makes them very special in that they can harbor viruses easier because of this without getting sick themselves. Science's incursion into the world of viruses first began when researchers were investigating the tobacco mosaic disease. I vaguely recall learning about this once, tobacco mosaic disease, for which the responsible pathogen could not be identified. Way back in 1886, German chemist Adolf Meyer, Adolf Meyer crushed, crushed diseased tobacco leaves and poured the resulting juice into the veins of healthy tobacco leaves. Sure enough, the leaves later developed the yellowish speckling characteristic of the disease. But despite his best efforts, Meyer couldn't find the bacteria which he was certain was responsible for the disease. Six years later, in 1892, Dmitry Ivanovsky, at the time a student in Russia, replicated Meyer's experiment. However, he introduced an additional step. Before injecting the juice, into healthy tobacco leaves, he passed the juice through a Cumberland filter. The filter is fine enough to capture bacteria, bacteria, bacteria and other known organisms, but even after the filtration, the liquid concoction still caused disease when it encountered tobacco leaves. So there was something in the juice smaller than bacteria causing the infection. Dutch scientist Martinus Bergernik believed that the cause of tobacco disease wasn't bacterial in origin, but rather by a, quote, filterable virus, unquote. The word virus actually describes poisonous liquids in Latin. It wasn't until almost 50 years later, in 1939, that scientists confirmed the existence of the tobacco mosaic virus using an electron microscope, the only scientific instrument capable of imaging objects of such a small size. There may be at least 1 million different types of viruses circulating in the world, 320,000 of which might be capable of infecting mammals. However, and maybe surprisingly, viruses are not inherently bad. Most viruses cannot infect humans and may even play important roles in ecosystems. If there were no viruses, life as we know it may, not, may even collapse. So here, folks, is another reason uh, if you think, again, like uh, viruses are so mystical, so weird, why should they be? They have a purpose, okay? Like a lot of things in nature, there's a good side and a bad side. So viruses have their good side. According to, to according to Tony Goldberg, an epidemiologist at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, if all viruses suddenly disappeared, the world would be a wonderful place for about a day and a half, and then we'd all die, that's the bottom line. All essential things they do in the world far outweigh the bad things. It's kind of hard to believe that right now, but uh, I guess that's the generalization. 
This is all very counterintuitive, but viruses sustain life rather than destroy it. One way they do this is they keep ecosystems in check uh, by infecting bacteria. Viruses that infect bacteria are called phages, from the Greek phagin, meaning to devour, and we'd all be in deep trouble without them. Bacteria would run amok and kill us all. So there you go. Don't be totally mad at viruses, despite the situation. They are out there killing bacteria, which want to kill us. That's not even everything. There might be more uses for bacteria, uh, viruses. Uh, although this is not fully understood yet, scientists think that some viruses can give organisms an advantage. For instance, viruses seem to play a role in the process that turns cellulose from grass into milk in cows. Interesting. So while we're talking about uh, phages, that brings up an interesting topic called phage therapy. You may have heard that phrase, phage therapy. As mentioned, a phage, formerly known as a bacteriophage, is a virus that infects and replicates within bacteria. The term was derived from bacteria and the Greek word phagin, meaning to devour. In, in phage therapy, a bacterial infection is itself treated with the virus that infects the bacteria and kills it. What's great about phage therapy compared to antibiotics is how specific a phage can be. It can infect and kill only the harmful or deadly bacteria of, of interest while leaving good bacteria alone. For example, the good bacteria in your gut. That's a big problem with antibiotics. Wipes out all the good stuff in your gut. Uh, this therapy is actually over 100 years old. The first known therapeutic use of phages occurred in 1919 when Felix de Harel and several hospital interns ingested a phage cocktail to, incheck, to check its safety. They ingested it. They took it themselves. Then they gave it to a 12-year-old boy with, with severe dysentery. The boy's symptoms cleared up after a single dose and he fully recovered within a few days. Yet, uh, De Harrell didn't publish his findings until 1931. Some really amazing information about bacteriophages. And again, I'm going long. I apologize. They are really fascinating. They are among the most common and diverse entities, entities in all of the biosphere. Bacteriophages are ubiquitous viruses found wherever bacteria exist. It is estimated that there are more than 10 to the 31st bacteriophages on the planet, more than every other organisms on Earth, including bacteria combined. 10 to the 31st. I don't know if you can grasp how big that is. Uh, for 10 to the 31st is one, I'm sorry, it's been estimated that, for example, there are about 10 to the 21st grains of sand on Earth, yet there are 10 to the 31st bacteriophages. Uh, that's 11 uh, about 10, well, that's about 11 when, when it comes to powers of magnitude higher, 100 billion times, 100 billion times more bacteriophages than grains of sand on Earth. It's just a ridiculous number. One of the densest natural sources, natural sources for phages and other viruses is seawater. We're up to 100 million virions per milliliter have been found in microbial mats at the surface. One milliliter, 100 million viruses. And up to 70% of marine bacteria may be infected by phages. 
So those are just stupid, stupid numbers. In 2019, just a year ago, the United States FDA approved the first U.S. clinical trial for intravenous phage therapy. And I didn't look up what it was. I should have. Although other countries are ahead of the U.S. in this research. I do have an example of phage therapy. This is a one-off case, and I'm sure it's being followed up on. Maybe it's the one that's being approved. I don't know. But here's one case uh, from a few years ago that I've read about or heard about in a few different places. Medical researcher Stephanie Strathdee needed to save the life of her husband, researcher Tom Patterson, when he contracted one of the world's worst infections. Yes, conveniently, Stephanie happened to be a, an infectious disease epidemiologist at the University of California, San Diego School of Medicine. She's working on HIV and other SD, STD preventions. Long story short-ish. Stephanie's husband, Tom, got a nasty bacterial infection that failed to respond to any antibiotics. I'm sure you've heard of these superbugs that can fight off any type of antibiotics. It's kind of a panic-inducing thought. He got the bug in Egypt in 2015. Strathdy approached the head of the infectious diseases department at her university hospital. He told her, if you can find phages that match Tom's bacterial infection, I will contact the FDA and get approval to use them for compassionate use. In just a year later, uh, February 2016, she begged for help and researcher, probably had less than a year, a year later, it might be just months later, she begged for help and a researcher from Texas A&M responded. She sent him Tom's bacterial culture and he looked for phages in his lab that would match it. He also looked at environmental samples, which essentially meant sewage, because wherever you find a lot of bacteria, you find a lot of phages that prey upon them. Luckily, and what seems amazingly to me, they were able to find four phages that attacked his bacteria. Also, some of his colleagues from the Navy, I guess Navy research, also found more phages that matched Tom's bacteria, and they agreed to help as well. Uh, and I'm assuming there's a whole bunch of work very quickly to get all of this done. And I'm just amazed all of this was done to save Tom's life in time to save Tom's life. Uh, they, uh, things I read, the illness he had was horrible. They had about six times he nearly died going into like septic shock. He was induced in a coma. He couldn't move. He couldn't talk. She tried to talk to him, the best he could do is maybe squeeze her hand at best. And I, I think he, well, anyway, let me continue. The phage therapy began on March 15th, 2016. Now, it was February of 2016 when she asked for help. In March, they started the therapy? I, I can't comprehend this. One month? So they got FDA, they, they found phages and got FDA approval in a month? This just seems almost unbelievable. Uh, he woke up from his coma on March 20th, five days later. He was in the hospital for a total of nine months, but he did survive. Uh, he had to go through a lot of rehabilitation to get back the muscle strength he had lost. He had, to, he had to learn to talk, to swallow. He was in a wheelchair for a while, but uh, last time I checked, he, everything seems okay. They went to Peru or something and did a hike recently. And she has written a book about all of this. It's really an amazing story. And uh, obviously look for more phage therapy in the future and more success stories. It's really, really fascinating. 
And we'll stop there. That's the end of part one of uh, viruses. So kind of the bad and the good there, which I think is super fascinating. We will uh, talk more tomorrow about viruses. Talk to you then.